This episode is brought to you by Hoka One One. With a bold and unexpected approach, Hoka empowers athletes of all levels to feel like they can fly. Born in the mountains and built with enhanced cushioning and uniquely smooth ride, Hoka running and hiking footwear is designed to propel you forward. Hoka innovates fearlessly to build the best trail running and hiking footwear and apparel to meet the needs of a wide variety of athletes. For more information, visit hokaoneone.com or follow at hokaoneone on Instagram. It's time to fly. The poet T.S. Eliot was a weird dude. He was known to collect umbrellas with custom handles and was a cheese connoisseur. The joke in English majory type circles is that he was the best British poet ever to come out of St. Louis. His friend and fellow poet Ezra Pound nicknamed him Old Possum. You might have heard of Old Possum's book of practical cats, which you might actually know as Cats, the bizarro CGI feline musical about naming and ritual cat sacrifice, I think? Anyway, the first poem Eliot ever really published was The Love Song of Alfred J. Prufrock, which was a game-changing poetic masterpiece. It's the literary equivalent of a 2.30 marathon debut or Western States podium in your first ultra. It was totally new. It changed all the rules about writing and poetry. It was the first truly modern or modernist poem. Even in light of what was objectively a huge success, Eliot struggled. Eliot was working a day job as a banker in London. Literary success was not what he had hoped, and he suffered from a nervous breakdown. He was diagnosed with lack of will, which we would now call clinical depression. He went to Switzerland to seek treatment with an early form of cognitive behavioral therapy. In the midst of his mental health struggle, he wrote The Wasteland, a 434-line poetic masterpiece to rival even his earlier work. This sets an unfair precedent for even the highest functioning of us anxious depressive types. The Wasteland is a dark, dark poem, and though I'm loath to play into tropes about mental illness and genius, you can produce great work and take care of yourself. The poem's central tension comes from its juxtaposition of life and death, light and dark, renew and decay. Take, for instance, the very first line, April is the cruelest month. The wasteland itself refers to a king's fallow fields that can only be restored when the poet asks for help. The poem sprang from the darkest moment of Eliot's life and illuminated everything around it. After therapy and a bit of rest, Eliot was able to return to London in writing, and it's that process that we have to thank for cats. The thing that makes poetry, life, running, or anything interesting is that tension. The good with the bad, the hard with the beautiful, the ability to hold both in your hands at the same time and reconcile them in a single stanza. What I'm saying is that the best things can be hard and wonderful, tough and beautiful at the same time. And the best way to turn the dark into light, the fallow to fertile, is to acknowledge it and ask for help. And sometimes our best work can come from dark places. But you should still take care of yourself. This is DNF from Trail Runner Magazine. 
a podcast about failure in life and running. I'm Zoe Rome. I'm also a sourdough bread baker. In the before times, when sourdough was more of a food and less of an expression of pandemic-related ennui, Mike was a professional runner and semi-professional baker. I was before the quarantine, for the record. Mike grew up in Ohio, far away from the mountains in Montana, where he currently lives. Not known for its mountain ranges. And uh, while I loved to play outside, it was mostly like building forts in the woods next to the junkyard. And we'd go steal things from the junkyard to like build our forts. And that was like my outdoor time. Mike moved out west in 2003 and immediately fell head over heels for the jagged granite peaks, lush alpine meadows splattered with rainbow wildflowers, and pristine snowfields in winter. Started to spend as much time outdoors, on the trails, up on the ridges, summiting mountains uh, as I possibly could. His love for outdoor exploration started taking him further and further into the backcountry, exploring on foot. At first it was just going for a short hike and then a long hike and then a short run and then a long run and then a longer run. And uh, before I knew it, I was probably running ultras before I even knew what ultras were. Mike settled into the Montana trail running community and started competing in some smaller races. One thing led to another and the distances continued to increase. And yeah, I I signed up for a 100 mile race. That was kind of the beginning. In 2009, Mike signed up for the Wasatch 100. He was ski patrolling and living in Whitefish at the time, living in an 11-foot by 11-foot cabin. He hadn't technically run an ultra race at that point, deterred by the idea that ultramarathon training required a monk-like devotion, precluded maintaining a social life or having a significant other. You know, the typical worries of a 20-something dude living in a tiny cabin in rural Montana. Some late-night web browsing led Mike into the dark corners of the internet where perfectly good runners get suckered into increasingly absurd feats of endurance. On the front of the website, it said you only have one day to put your name into the lottery for 2009. And I went from thinking I would never do it to thinking, oh man, this is my only chance, and immediately put my name in that. The lottery gods, cruel and vindictive tricksters that they are, smiled upon Mike. He was going to run his first 100. He decided he should at least try to race a 50K to get ready. But almost nothing can prepare you for the utter and complete physical and emotional dismantling that is a 100-mile race. Mike's battle plan was to stave off physical and emotional cataclysm with Fig Newtons and a beginner's determination. I, I didn't know what an electrolyte was. So, I mean, I went into this pretty green and didn't really know what I was getting into. With that said, I was able to turn it around and and complete the event in under 24 hours, which was like a big deal at the time. And I think I was top 10. But what was interesting to me was never once did I think about quitting. And I was shocked when there was people I'd be running with who would decide not to continue. I'm thankful for that ignorance that you were allowed to quit in a 100 mile race of not knowing that. Mike's career took off from there. He started running a couple 100-mile races a year, moving his way up onto podiums and eventually got into UTMB. He sold t-shirts to pay his way overseas and slept on friends' hotel floors to keep the cost down. He was the first American finisher in his first year at UTMB. Initially, Mike had struggled to get the attention of team managers and brands to support his running. Now, his inbox was filling up. 
he started running for the North Face, and that opened even more opportunities for travel and competition. He wasn't sleeping on hotel floors anymore. I guess there was a part of me that really desired being, uh, you know, a, a professional runner. It, it was what I was just chasing really hard at the time, and I was starting to make a lot of sacrifices for it. I think that the training logic at the time was run as much as you possibly can without completely annihilating yourself. And if you completely annihilate yourself, that's okay, because you just need to run a ton to train for these events. He threw himself headlong into training. On days he wasn't working at his local running store, he tackled double-digit mountain miles. On days he did work at the shop, he ran before and after work. Mike was running all the time. Mike's dad had struggled on and off with depression, cardiac issues, and diabetes before passing away from a heart attack at a young age. Mike was determined not to follow that same path. At the same time, I, I have a tendency to put really high expectations on myself. And so it's finding this balance of, of living this quote-unquote healthy lifestyle while also having, <laughs> I'm learning slowly to have some self-compassion along the route when things aren't perfect because I, I have a tendency to hold things pretty tight. And while that can lead to you know, good results or successful moments in my life, it can also really crowd a lot of other things out and, and maybe not leave me feeling as fulfilled as I, as I would if I had a little bit more flexibility. As Mike's career really started to take off, the pressure to succeed and to present himself as successful started to build. As I have fallen into this like dream job of professional trail runner, you know, with a predisposition for struggling with, you know, something like depression, anxiety. It's manifested in the in recent years in body image issues, uh, expectations to be a certain weight. Eating has has been something I've really struggled with. Everybody has different relationships with food, but I started to go down path of disordered eating. It's going to sound funny, but I, I think of one of the biggest failures I've had in my athletic career was se setting a world record for most vertical feet climbed and skied in 24 hours. I set this big goal to, you know, see how much I could just climb and ski on a ski area in a single day. And I thought it'd be really fun to try and break the world record, which was 60,000 feet at the time. And the months leading into that attempt were one of the some of the most stress-induced, anxiety-induced, and, and, and depressive I, I think I've ever been. I was very stressed about this goal I had set for myself. And instead of desiring to do this incredible feat, I was just so afraid that I was going to fail. For months leading up to the big day, Mike had physical symptoms of anxiety. His chest was tight, and he had trouble breathing. That anxiety also manifested as disordered eating, and Mike found himself binge eating several times a week, then dealing with the shame that that behavior caused. It was just some of the most unhealthy I had been were the months leading into that, that this like silly goal that I had set for myself. Mike was training as hard as he ever had, but was feeling worse and worse. He didn't even feel excited for what should have been a huge celebration of his hard work, just scared to fail and ashamed that maybe he already had. Hear more after the break. This 
episode is brought to you by Hoka One One. With a bold and unexpected approach, Hoka empowers athletes of all levels to feel like they can fly. Born in the mountains and built with enhanced cushioning and a uniquely smooth ride, Hoka trail running, road running, hiking, walking, and fitness footwear is designed to propel you forward. Hoka innovates fearlessly to build the best performance footwear and apparel to meet the running, walking, fitness, and outdoor needs of a wide variety of athletes. For more information and to see the stories of athletes who inspire us to overcome obstacles, be our authentic selves, and find joy in movement, visit HokaOneOne.com or follow at HokaOneOne on Instagram and tag at HokaOneOne and use the hashtag TimeToFly when you post on social media for the chance to be featured on their channels. It's time to fly. restricting food, Mike Foote struggled with binge eating disorder. This disorder is often overlooked or downplayed in discussions around eating disorders because people often misunderstand it as a lack of willpower or bad habits, when in reality it is a diagnosable mental illness. People who struggle with binge eating will often eat more than is necessary and even comfortable in a single sitting. In addition to the shame and stigma heaped on all eating disorders and mental illness, People who struggle with binge eating will often not seek help because of the additional shame that comes with how our society misunderstands binge eating. It's often associated with a lack of control and feeling like you can't stop eating than a feeling of guilt and shame following binge episodes that drives even more disordered behavior. Just as an aside, you can't tell if someone is struggling with an eating disorder just from how they look. Many people who struggle with binge eating tend to be of normal or slightly higher than normal weight. And while there are negative physical implications associated with the weight cycling that can accompany binge eating, a lot of the damage is mental and emotional. Many people who've fallen prey to our culture's narrative that their inability to stop eating is due to a lack of willpower rather than maladapted coping mechanisms won't even realize they have an eating disorder. But it's not a choice, and it's not a lack of discipline or willpower. It's, it's a really weird reaction to stress, anxiety, depression. But for whatever reason, that was something that became more and more and more common in my life over the course of a few years. For a period of time, I don't think I realized what I was doing. I think that perhaps I just thought like, oh, I'm just stress eating, whatever. And that's, you know, and I'd feel shame around it. But it got to the point where it was something I was doing three to five times a week where I would eat everything in sight, whether I wanted or not. Oftentimes when I didn't want food, um, again, as an odd form of self-punishment. The internet is full of bro science that is basically not so secretly disordered eating. Diets that claim to help reduce weight or build muscle can set athletes on a path of disordered eating disguised as health or biohacking. Our culture has a nasty habit of scrutinizing athlete bodies, especially in sports like ultra running and schemo that emphasize weight and appearance. While discussions around eating disorders and disordered eating have become more normal, men are often left out of those discussions or their specific needs and concerns aren't addressed. The cultural imagination tends to view eating disorders as something that primarily affects heterosexual, affluent, cisgender, thin white women. This inaccurate stereotype decreases the likelihood that people who don't fit that mold will look for and receive the help they deserve. For their part, 
eating disorders don't discriminate. And the more we can recognize that this is an issue that affects men, as well as transgender, non-binary, non-white, and other marginalized groups in specific and quantifiable ways, the better off we all are. What I'm saying is, being a person is hard, no matter who you are. And we should better address the ways it's specifically hard for specific people, rather than causing them to feel shame about those things. Men who identify as athletes are two to three times more likely than average to develop an eating disorder. And men constitute over 40% of individuals diagnosed with binge eating. These numbers only represent reported cases. Because of social pressure, men are likely to underreport eating disorders. Athletes are even more likely to underreport their symptoms or may even consider them to be normal or even necessary to be an athlete. I think men just struggle to have an ability to be vulnerable in sharing their stories. It's not easy to say that, hey, I messed up or, you know, I'm struggling with this thing that has this really large stigma around it. You know, saying that you struggle with mental health alone is really hard. And then saying, yeah, and it manifests in an eating disorder as well. That's, that's like a double whammy for a man who is, you know, in our society often supposed to not really share their emotions or share their struggles. And I think it's a disservice to the community because, because I just, I'm, I'm quite confident that there are quite a few men, specifically, you know, in our small niche of endurance trail running that struggle with eating disorders. There's a tendency to more readily recognize eating disorders in females more than males, and to recognize anorexia nervosa over binge eating men tend to wait longer to reach out for help and treatment. I was starting to head down a, a road that was not healthy at all. It, didn't, it wasn't in line with any of my goals of being just healthy in general, of having a good relationship with food, of having a good self-image. Through all of that, Mike kept training and eventually did beat the world vertical ski record. On March 17th of 2018, Mike Foote stepped into his skinny skis and headed up Ed's Run, an intermediate ski route above Whitefish, Montana. Mike and his coach had set a goal to average 2,560 feet each hour, including three and a half minutes of descent. So for 24 hours, Mike skied up and down. He skied through the dark, cold night and into a chilly morning with a classic mountain inversion. Every 30 minutes, he stopped at a makeshift aid station at the mountain's base to refuel and change skis. Without even pausing to put on skins, Mike would take up off the hill, snacks in hand. At the end of his 59th lap, Mike had officially broke the record. So close. He's almost done with lap 59. We're doing a party ski. We're going to all join him. And then on the flip side, the last lap, I have all my friends around me, like, we're charging up the hill together, like everybody's cheering, like there's all this positive energy and it's like, that's a moment I'm gonna remember. But that good feeling didn't last. Even after breaking a world record, the most ambitious goal he had ever set for himself, Mike felt hollow. Immediately, I remember two days later just being in like a pretty deep depression and my, my eating disorder disordered behavior continued on and it was it was a very yeah it was a very trying time in my life i i realized that i needed i needed help i needed to see counseling i needed to address it 
and I needed to like let people know about it. You know, essentially four months after that 24 hour world record attempt, I was supposed to line up for one of my favorite races in the world, Hard Rock 100. Though he had achieved something beyond his wildest dreams, it just didn't feel right. No goal was worth sacrificing his mental or physical well-being for. I put more and more pressure on myself, and I handled it really poorly at times, and it was very unhealthy. And in this moment of this, you know, this huge like goal of mine to set this world record, I didn't enjoy it. You know, I it was very hard for me to be in the moment. I just was so stressed and so, <laughs> you know having just all of these unhealthy behaviors leading into it, it just didn't feel good. Like, I mean, we, we love these sports because we're able to learn about ourselves and dig deep, but I just approached it in such a way that it, it felt like the right goal, but it didn't feel like the right process. I didn't bring the right process to it. I brought fear, anxiety, and this like lack of desire and this lack of fun to it. Hard rock is so, so hard to get into so hard that even a pro like Mike was nervous about getting in again. It's got to have one of the lowest DNS rates of anything out there. And three weeks out from Mike's favorite race, he wanted nothing to do with it. He felt unhealthy physically and mentally. And I pulled the plug on it. I don't think I've ever not showed up to the start line of an event that I had signed up for like that. And it was it was really challenging. And I, I shared you know, on social media, my reasons why I was really open about it. Mike's inbox flooded with supportive messages. People reached out, left voicemails and texts, offering support and encouragement. I was getting responses, everything from friends just saying, hey, I love you and let me know how I can support you, which was just so amazing, to, hey, I struggle with this too, and I've always had a really hard time sharing about it. And I, in fact, I never have publicly and I am blown away by your courage. And that too was just so empowering and such a reminder that I had done the right thing. That outpouring of support from the community gave Mike the courage to address what he was struggling with so that he could move forward. He dug into counseling and eating disorder recovery. He started talking more openly about his struggles with people in his life and even random strangers on the internet. The DMs aren't always such a scary, dark place. If anybody went onto my Instagram and checked like who I follow, they'll realize I follow like 50 eating disorder accounts <laughs> because I think that it's great to learn, you know, from different eating disorder centers in, in the U.S. And, and ones that are very re reputable and, you know, very appropriate language. And So many of these resources are still aimed at women. They use a very hallmarky live, laugh, love kind of font, and the messaging is pretty explicitly feminine. It's not always the most welcoming place for someone who doesn't fit that gender identity, and it could be better. Through conversations with his counselor and friends and loved ones, Mike was able to reconnect with his joy for running and enjoy movement for what it was, rather than using it as a coping mechanism or a way of avoiding guilt or shame. It took a lot of work, but he was able to establish a healthier and freer relationship with food through learning to sit with tough emotions rather than avoiding them. If you like speak your fears, they pretty much lose all their power. And, and it's true. I mean, I felt that. I felt like I had just that little bit of traction and that little bit of control to address this more head on. The thing is, there is no Rocky-style training montage for what is really the most important part of this story. 
That montage would just be a series of clips of Mike reading about stuff on the internet, sharing his feelings with strangers, journaling, or enjoying macaroni. The hard work of therapy, self-acceptance, growth and healing doesn't have a sexy story arc or a lot of compelling drama, but it does have joy and love and macaroni. I'll say it. I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful that I had that experience because I know that I don't want to approach my goals like that ever again. And I have to remind myself often that, you know, that is not the way to do it because if you can't enjoy like the journey to that start line and you can't feel good about what got you there, you might achieve a result you want, you might not, but you might, you just won't feel fulfilled at the end of the day. And I think that's the biggest part. Through this work, Mike was able to find a better balance between physical and mental health and chasing down excellence on the trails. He doesn't always nail it. Recovery is a tricky trail, but staying on the path is what matters. I, I can't help but acknowledge the fact that if I weren't a professional trail runner, I might have different expectations of my body or body image or all of these things. Many days in a year where I think to myself, I'm supposed to look like an ultra runner and I don't think I do in that way that I, sh I think I should, which who knows what the heck that means because I know as well as anybody that we all have these amazing bodies of all shapes and sizes that do incredible things. And instead of celebrating that, I try and find the, the one thing that I can critique or the two things that I can critique. And that's such an unhealthy path to go down. Throughout recovery, Mike had been able to connect with what brought him to the trails in the first place. A love of unstructured outdoor activity, spending time in nature, skiing and running and exploring. Mike hasn't gotten less competitive. He just takes more care to be sure his goals align with his values and that he's more invested in the process than a specific outcome. I know I'm going to find joy in that process, whether it's a project of running along the U.S.-Mexico border to interact with communities um, in that area or just a local running and traversing a local mountain range and never sharing about it uh, because I want to do it for me. Those little things are really important. Now when Mike has a hard day, he talks it out with his wife, friends, coach, or therapist. His whole identity doesn't revolve around his athletics. He's a writer, and he's written amazing pieces for Trail Runner about conservation, the environment, and his experience running the U.S.-Mexico border. He works with the Five Valleys Land Trust to conserve land near his home in Montana. He's the race director for the legendary race, Run the Rut. In the last handful of years, as I've found that, struck that balance a little bit better with profession and being more involved in my community, I feel that it, it actually, you know, lifts me up and brings, gives me more energy to bring to my training when I'm training and I can focus on that. Everybody's different, but for me, it's, it's allowed me to let go a little bit, have that flexibility, be much less rigid and, you know, flow with it a little bit more. And it sure isn't perfect, but it definitely works better for me and will allow me to be more sustainable and healthy in my career as a runner. The more Mike leaned into his community, the better his running got and the less he cared about that in the first place. In letting go, Mike was able to move through and forward. He still holds the North American ski record. The world record was later beaten by a runner named Killian Journey. There's this thing in poetry called negative capability. 
it was a term first coined by my favorite poet, John Keats, to describe an artist's ability to access truth outside of the framework of logic or science. It basically sprang from the 19th century epistolary equivalent of a Twitter beef with the philosopher Coleridge, who was super into prioritizing definitive answers over what he thought were mushy concepts like beauty or happiness, but like, I live for the mushy stuff, and I really dig negative capability. It's a willingness to embrace uncertainty, live with mystery, and make peace with ambiguity. It's about living out life's questions and holding in your hands their unanswerable tension. I see a lot of that in both Mike and T.S. Eliot, a comparison that probably doesn't happen too often. But it's an understanding that good can come from the bad and that sometimes seemingly fallow fields are potentially the most fertile. It's about looking out across the wasteland and seeing nothing but limitless potential. No matter who you are, if you're curious about exploring your relationship with food, movement, or starting on the recovery process, the best time is now. Reach out. Help is available. And you deserve an amazing support network. One resource I really like is Bigger Than the Trail. It's a nonprofit that connects trail runners to affordable mental health care online. You can find that at bttt.run. This episode of DNF was written and produced by me, Zoe Rome, for Trail Runner Magazine. Theme music by the band Lotus. Other music is written and performed by Bitbeak and Banana Cactus. If you like this podcast, take a second to rate and review it on your favorite platform. You can find this episode and other installments of DNF at trailrunnermag.com.